The guidance of a committee is separate from the guidance of an editor. Scholars shouldn't expect their chair and committee members to do the same thing as an editor, which is go through and do all these little bitty things. You're listening to the Happy Doc Student Podcast, a podcast dedicated to providing clarity to the often mysterious doctoral process. Do you feel like you're losing your mind? Let me and my guests show you how to put more joy in your journey and graduate with your sanity, health, and relationships intact. I'm your host, Dr. Heather Frederick, and this is episode 11. In this episode, we're talking about the value of using an editor and how to find a good one. My guest today is Julie Konzelman. Dr. Jules earned her doctorate in management at University of Phoenix and her copy editor's certification from UC San Diego. She is a faculty member at the Jack Welch Management Institute, the CEO and editor-in-chief at Scholar Chatter LLC, and the CEO and copy editor at Superior Editing Services. Dr. Jules is an accomplished business leader, copy editor, mentor, teacher, public speaker, journal reviewer, and author. Her books, Keep It Simple Scholars, Volumes 1 and 2, offer a basic guide for writing and editing dissertations and theses, as well as outlining the elements of the dissertation step-by-step. I know that many of my listeners are big fans, so welcome to the show, Dr. Jules. Hi, how are you, Heather? Good, good. I am so happy to have you here with us today to talk to us about editing. Now, most doctoral students at some point in their journey are absolutely going to be getting feedback about their writing. This style of writing at this level, it's different than the way we're used to writing, isn't it? Correct. Most people think and speak and write exactly the same. So if you're thinking it from the brain to the hand to the paper or the computer, those thoughts flow freely uh, because that's part of who you are. That's the natural scheme of things for you. But when we're writing for somebody else to read what we've written, it has to be in a certain format that we actually see that whole picture that's in that person's brain. So you're taking that snapshot, you're describing it, you're putting it in a written format, and the other person has to understand almost exactly what you're visioning. For you as a chair, you are that person for the scholar who says something's missing here and fix it. The scholar fixes it, sends the paper to me as an editor, and then my job is to say, does this work? So let me just start by saying, I've been sharing for decades. I will 10 times out of 10 say to a student I'm working with, we're going to have a discussion about how an editor may assist you through this process, right? But there is this balance we were talking about before we started recording, a dissertation, doctoral projects, and original work. So this idea of hiring outside help sometimes feels awkward to people. So let's talk about why you would use an editor and how that whole process works. Okay, so... Some universities have this cloud, I guess you could say, whether it's okay or not okay to use an editor. Some universities actually spell out the use of outside assistance, including editors, what can and cannot be done. 
other people are left hanging and they have to ask or get advice from their chair. If you're taking the time as a student to make the changes to your paper that are required, but just having, I mean, look at it as tutoring assistance, then I think editing is you know, the best thing for anybody to do. And I don't think it's up to the universities to tell people they can or cannot use an editor. I do agree with the guidelines. An editor should not do a rewrite. I shouldn't start doing line editing on page one and red line all the way through to page 50 and have completely changed everything in that document. The reason for that is that makes the paper mine because now I've changed all of the wording to what comes out of my brain and what I'm understanding rather than from the writing perspective of the the original author who is the student. With a degree-bearing paper, it is unethical for me as an editor to rewrite that document. What I do use is track changes in Word and comments, and students can go through and do whatever they need to do to their paper again, with the guidance of their chair. The other pitfall, I would say, for, for editors uh, working with students is, and I, and I don't want you to take this in a bad way, is becoming an organized team with a chair. We still have to keep our realm separate. I'm not going to send you an email and say, hey, Dr. Heather, you shouldn't tell your student to do this. And I don't expect an email from you that says, you know, you told my student to do this. Everything should come from the student. And I always tell them, if your chair demands you do something, then we do that because that's the person who's signing the dissertation saying you're a doctor. I'm just helping with grammar, punctuation. Right, kind of crossing those T's and dotting those I's. So there really is this sense, the student, the scholar is owning this work. Correct. They have to sign a statement of originality. It's prudent for them to be the one that has, you know, come up with the topic, wrote all the words. Yeah, we're revising some of the words. We might be moving things around, you know, shifting things, you know, logically in a paper, but it shouldn't come down to me changing every word in a sentence to make it all perfect. It still has to have that tone and flavor, if you will, of the person who wrote the paper. And I've told a few people, I don't want to take you out of this document. You have to stay in here. So there's a lot that goes on in this process. It's a lot to take in. But the overall point is, yes, you can use an editor. Yes, you should use an editor. Just make sure that it's all, you know, on an ethical level. You know, you don't have to tell your chair you're using an editor, but it doesn't hurt. Yeah. And Dr. Jules, as an editor that comes from integrity, you're not removing this academic voice. You're literally just fixing and correcting these things where the research is still owned by the scholar. In fact, usually I will say to students, listen, this is going to save you a lot of time. You're doing the heavy lifting with creating, with generating this research. Get help with the citations, the anthropomorphism, the tense. Exactly. It and may be the difference between having to re-enroll in classes if your committee's trying to help you with that. My suggestion has always been the two main times to have a document edited is after the committee has reviewed the document, but before it goes to the university for any type of review and, and approval. The premise, of course, is 
for the committee to say, here's all your content. It looks great. I understand what you're doing. You're being ethical. Let's move it forward. The editor's job is to make sure the formatting is, is accurate, to make sure that the writing is accurate so that when it gets to the reviewer, what they're looking at is the content, the ethics. That's all that they should be looking at. They, should, you know, Once in a while, they'll come back and say, you've got an extra period here or there's an extra space. You know, There's three pages with nothing on it. Easy fixes. And of course, I'm going to say this, nobody's perfect. When you're considering when to have a paper edited, am I hearing that would be at both the proposal and the final manuscript stage then? Correct. You want okay. the IRB to have a formally edited and formatted paper. Again, you have to remember this is a group of people who come together either once or twice or however many times a month, and your paper isn't the only one. So you want them to be able to just go through very quickly and look for the things that, you know, that do need to be fixed or look at it and say, wow, this is an exceptional proposal. There's no changes. It goes right on through. Sending something that's a mess, nobody wants to look at it. If it's got a lot of grammar errors, those extra spaces, all that stuff really does detract from what you want these people to do for you. And this is no small thing because as a reviewer myself, I know I can't help it as a human. I'm seeing the APA errors. I'm seeing the tense. I'm seeing the anthropomorphism. And if I need to stop and comment on those, I am. I'm getting distracted from the content and actually giving the feedback that I'm meant to give. And that's a, another one of those pitfalls that comes to the scholar from the reviewing process is the, I don't understand what you're trying to say here. So if we're talking about uh, the problem statement and the first sentence is, you know, gobbledygook. The person reviewing that document isn't going to actually see the statement that says this is the problem. It, you get stuck on those errors. And I know what happens for me. I've had people come back to me and say, did you mean to say got instead of hot? <laughs> you know, I'm a bad proofreader of my own texts. So aren't we all? Exactly. So that's why the editing process is important. We get so close to what we write ourselves. We know what we're writing about. We're, you know, the dog training. We've got it down that the dog's going to go up the hoop and through here and over there. And as somebody else reading it would say, well, wouldn't they go through the hoop and up the ladder instead of through the ladder and up the hoop? The main thing about editing is looking through that lens of, uh, common sense, if anything. And there are so many people who get stuck at this stage. And I have said many times, I have no doubt you have a viable research topic here, but it's not being articulated. I know you know what it is you want to do, but it's not coming out here and I'm confused. And if they had just sent it to an editor beforehand, it could have saved so much time, but also heartache. Exactly. There's two things that a scholar loses from not getting an editor. And time is important. When that clock is ticking every second of the program, even while you sleep, time is going on. If you don't get to these milestones, you don't get done by February 1st, you're out of here. That creates that time animosity. That's where the desperation comes in. If you get desperate, you still have to be able to step back, take a breath, think things through, and 
you know, take that, you know, an, an hour to get a hold of a few people, get them on the phone and say, what do I get? How much time? And who's touching my paper? Those are very important. The other thing is money. Well, there's, there's three, I guess, time, money, and the effort. All this extra work to keep revising and revising and revising. And, you know, eventually chairs and committee members get tired of the peat and repeat, if we, if we will. You know, change this section. Okay, I changed it. Well, it's not what we wanted. A scholar might come back and say, my chair didn't articulate to me specifically what they wanted me to change. My next thought is, ask them. You know, I understand you want me to change something in my problem statement, but I don't clearly see your vision of what you want me to change. Can you give me an idea? Then that first sentence just doesn't read well. Okay, so now I need to focus on what's wrong. Scholars shouldn't expect their chair and committee members to do the same thing as an editor, which is go through and do all these little bitty things. The guidance of a committee is separate from the guidance of an editor. From my perspective, even though I might have the same level of expertise as a committee, which I do, my job is to make sure that it reads well, has good punctuation and grammar, no anthropomorphism, the right tenses. The whole goal here is for me to help the scholar with the writing part and the degree part of it goes to the committee, if that makes sense. It does. And, and then it begs this question, well, how on earth do I find an editor? What are some of the things I should know, questions I should ask? I got a long list for you. The first thing I want to say about editors, again, I've said this about everybody, no one is perfect. That's the first thing I learned as a copy editor. My thinking is to look at someone's editing experience, expertise, and education. Somebody who graduated Saturday and hangs a sign that says they're an editor on Monday is not an editor. It's somebody who went through the doctoral program and they're done, and maybe they did a few things that were right, but it doesn't make them an editor. I've gone to copy editing school. I have certification. I'm an editor. A person who has a a degree in writing, journalism, or most teachers, I would say, have a lot of experience with writing and grammar. I would go for that. To find a good editor, there's the Editorial Freelance Association, the EFA. They have a list of editors. Not all of them are academic. LinkedIn, I think Twitter, and on Facebook, there's a lot of different forums where there's you know, people who are academic editors. Interview people. I mean, if you have to look at all these processes the same as you would any other type of job. You're the boss and you're going to interview the person who's going to be working with the one thing that's going to get you your degree, your dissertation. So getting people on the phone and talking to them, don't just send an email and ask those questions. What's your menu? What do you do and how much do you charge? I agree those are all important things. Those are great elements. But you want somebody who has some expertise. You want somebody who has a good reputation. You want someone who's going to say, I will give you the email or, you know, send you to somebody who will speak for me and tell you about their experience working with me. The other thing is, what do you get for that money? Do you get a one-time review of your document? And then the next time you send it back, they ask for more money. 
and more money and more money. Oh, there's an error in my paper. I'm going to charge you more money. That's one of the things that I find is disheartening, if you will, for me to see scholars, you know, just be nickeled and dimed to death. You know, I'm not here to tell people how much they could spend or should spend. I'm not going to throw out how much I charge. I charge by the project. And it depends on what happens during that interview with a scholar. And remember that while you're interviewing an editor, they're interviewing you as well. Do I want to work for this person? So it's a two-way street. The other thing that I have is, does your editor know the format for your document from your university? Formatting is important. Your university says to use just strictly APA then whoever is looking at your paper editing and formatting should know APA and know where to put those headings. If you're using a template from a university, then the person who's formatting your paper has to know about word styles because somebody made that document and put all these little style tags in there and one little boo-boo and the whole paper's corrupt. So that's important. Is that part of what you're paying for? Is it separate? Okay. The other thing that I have is, does your editor look for all the errors in your paper or is it piecemeal? If you have someone who edits and they don't look for anthropomorphism, they're actually leaving errors in your paper, but charging you for a service that they're actually not giving you a complete fee for service. It's a legal term. (laughs) Fee for service means that um, I'm paying you to do this. And you agree to do this. So you have to know what you're getting for your money. The other thing is to know who's working on your paper. And this is a big one. You're going to love this one. Have you ever seen an ad or somebody come up and say, I work for the dissertation editorial group? Yes. Okay. So you send your paper, you're the scholar, you send it to this group and they say, we're going to charge you $150 to edit your paper. That's a steal. Yes. So you send your paper along and it comes back with all these changes that make your paper sound like a cartoon. And you just paid 150 bucks for this paper to come back and be a complete mess. So now you've got to scrap that, go back to your other iteration, and then you get a hold of that company and you say, hey, I paid you to edit my paper, but I don't like what you did. But we'll send it back and we'll redo it. We'll get, you know, we'll get somebody else to look at your paper. So you send it back and you get it back in this in the same format as the first one. It's it's a mess. It's not what you would want to turn in. So now you've spent 300 bucks. So then you call and you say, who worked on my paper? I don't know. We just put them in a folder and somebody goes in and works on them when they have time and they get paid. So in those types of companies. You know, they, you have somebody that's their, like their top dog, and it's like a pyramid scheme almost. Um, and they have somebody who goes in, they grab a paper. They're not an editor. They have no education. They have no clue what they're doing. They use Word and Grammarly. They make a bunch of changes to your paper, send it back to you, and take your money. And they get- almost, almost like an academic sweatshop. Uh, basically, yeah. It's, yeah it, I would say that's the great term. I've never heard that, but I like it. So now you've lost time. Obviously, you've lost motivation and energy because now you keep getting your paper back and it just looks horrible. And then you know, the money, all, all those, those three things are emotionally and physically draining 
So those interviews and knowing who's touching your paper, those are very important for finding an editor. And it sounded like getting referrals. Referrals. Yep. That's huge. Yep. In this day and age of social media, especially with platforms that you personally host, there's really no excuse for people to not be able to get referrals and ask their questions and have some strong leads. Exactly. I just want people to understand that it's not something where you just draw a straw and say, I'm going to use this editor and then take what I get. You really have to you know, look at it from your own perspective and what's best for you to get done. That's the goal. So Dr. Jules, you have given us so much great information about how to be an educated consumer of editorial services, but I just can't let you go today without asking you to share a little bit about your books. I was prompted actually by one of my scholars to write a book. And she said, man, if I had a book with all the information I've learned from you going through this editing process, I would feel a hundred times better about, you know, being a scholar. So I said, you know what, I'm going to write a book. So I wrote, keep it simple scholars. This is the first one. It's a basic guide for writing and editing dissertations and theses. And this book is more comprehensive, like we were talking about, has the little, the hints with some examples. And then I was doing some presentations for a huge group of scholars, and I took my presentations and turned them into the second book, which is volume two, outlining the elements of the dissertation step by step. And it just takes a scholar through each of the chapters and the basic elements that should be in each of those chapters including citations and references, and just gives people a place to start for the folks who sit down with a blank piece of paper and say, I don't know what to write. That second book should be the first book. (laughs) You know, it's just like our movies. We watch the first movie and then we get the sequel that goes back 200 years. Together, these are great resources for scholars. They're inexpensive and full of information. May not be an APA 7, but still relevant to just the writing part of it and the self-editing part of uh, writing a dissertation. What I appreciate about your books is they really are these handbooks that you can grab at different points in the process to refresh yourself, to make sure you're on track. They're not overwhelming. I I love your motto, keep it simple, because how often am I just working with a student to say, let's remove some of this complexity. It really is simple if you stay focused and you follow the rules here and you follow the step-by-step. So your books are almost like a recipe. Exactly. Very, that is exactly what they are. Perfect words. Thank you. And I'm going to have all the links for everything, Dr. Jules, ways to contact you, the Facebook groups you run. I'm going to have you back for another episode where we're going to talk about publishing because now that you've got this document and it's been approved, what do you do next? So thank you again. And I can't wait to have you back. All right. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to connecting with you on the next episode. But until then, I'd like to invite you to visit my website, expandyourhappy.com, where you can download a document I wrote called The Doctoral Journey, 12 Things You Need to Know That They Probably Won't Tell You. And when you download that article, you'll be invited to participate in a seven-day email adventure that will help you kickstart your happy doctoral journey. I'm looking forward to connecting with you there. And until the next episode, I'm sending you more joy for your journey.
One more thing, just a quick reminder that the information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. 